0: Ten years ago, on February 22nd, 2014, the United States backed a neo-Nazi armed militia takeover of the government of Ukraine. Two years ago, on February 24, 2022, the Russian government invaded Ukraine in what Russia calls a special military operation. Today we're going to talk about Ukraine, Russia, the proxy war waged by the United States that did not start two years ago, but in fact started 10 years ago. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking once again with Vijay Prashad. Vijay is the executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He's the chief editor of Leftward Books. He's a prolific author, most recently publishing a new book with Noam Chomsky called The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of US Power. Vijay Prashad, welcome back.
1: Thanks a lot, Brian. It's great to be with you.
0: Thank you. As I said, you know, this is a second anniversary of the Russian special military operation as the Kremlin calls it. It's the 10th anniversary of a coup staged by Nazis. And I'm not using that as a rhetorical flourish. These were armed Nazi militias that toppled a democratically elected government in Ukraine. A corrupt government, certainly, but a democratically elected one that was in 2014. At the same time, VJ as we're sort of noting these anniversaries, there's another war going on. The war against the people of Gaza. The United States has for the third time in a row vetoed a resolution that insisted that Israel stop the mass killing spree against Palestinians in Gaza. There's interconnectedness between Palestine, Gaza and Ukraine. We're going to talk about that. There's a lot to cover. Before we do though, I want to start with a clip. It's President Biden speaking at the United Nations. We're going to hear that clip. And then I want to play another clip by Blinken, where he talks about the Middle East and Ukraine. And I want to then get your reactions. Let's start with President Biden. Note by the way, how he looks even a year and a half ago, quite different from today.
2: I reject the use of violence and war to conquer nations or expand borders through bloodshed to stand against global politics of fear and coercion, to defend the sovereign rights of smaller nations as equal to those of larger ones.
0: Okay, VJ, you know, they're all about defending the sovereignty of smaller nations, but I wanna get your reaction. But first, let's hear Anthony Blinken talking about Ukraine in the Middle East, and then we'll, we'll get started. Let's listen.
2: Defending Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity is about much more than standing up for one nation's right to choose its own path, fundamental as that right is. It's also about protecting an international order where no nation can redraw the borders of another by force. The Trump administration, as you know, also recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which Israel captured from Mm. Syria back in 1967. Uh, Will your administration, the Biden administration, continue to see the Golan Heights as part of Israel? Look, leaving aside... The legalities uh, of that uh, of, of that question, as a practical matter, uh, the uh, the Golan is very important to uh, Israel's uh, security. As long as Assad is in power in Syria, as long as uh, Iran is present.
0: Well, Vijay,
1: I don't know. Go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, the first thing I want to say is that it is actually quite stunning that you've chosen these clips to open with. The first. Concept I want to introduce for people is the concept of the international division of humanity. I mean, let's face it, you know, the kind of violence being put upon the Palestinians in Gaza, the qualitative brunt of violence that they've been facing is, in fact, at a different level than the violence in Ukraine. You know, and you can see that not only in casualty figures, but in destruction of physical infrastructure. I mean, I, I spent some time over the last week looking at Google Earth images from both Gaza and from the front lines in Ukraine, and it's night and day. You know, in this period, for instance, as an example, the Russians haven't bombed to level cities to to rubble. They haven't bombed Kiev, for instance, to level it to rubble. I remember the war in Iraq in 2003. The United States destroyed. All infrastructure immediately. Power plants, airports were rendered unusable, water treatment plants, all of them bombed, the key infrastructure destroyed. The Russians actually haven't done that. In fact, it's important for people to know that the airport in Kiev and, in fact, other Ukrainian airports continue to function. That's how Vladimir Zelensky is able to leave the country. Somewhere near the southern part of Rafa, towards the Egyptian border, it used to be an old airport that the people of Gaza had. It was the Gaza Airport. It was towards the side of Rafah. That airport has been gone for decades, you know, bombed out of existence. Doesn't function. There is no airport in Gaza. The level of violence that is being used against the Palestinians mirrors the level of violence that we saw in Fallujah, Ramadi, parts of Baghdad and so on. I mean I'm saying this because of that concept Brian there's an international division of humanity the outrage of Joe Biden speaking at the UN saying you know the sovereignty of our country small nations and so on I mean for god's sake Joe Biden you know those lines are going to be played back to you and it is ridiculous that that more of the media aren't reflecting on on the tenor of those statements There's an international division of humanity. Those principles apply to certain countries where the humanity of the people is established. The death of one Ukrainian, outrageous. The life of one Ukrainian refugee must be saved. The death of 100,000 Palestinians, 10,000 Palestinians, whatever the number ends up at, not as relevant. The question of Palestinian displacement, not as important. Here it is very clear that both these gentlemen, Mr. Biden and his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, effectively live with an international division of humanity consciousness. But there's something interesting in the second clip that you picked a demonstration, an exacting demonstration by Mr. Blinken of how very quickly principle can be set aside, even in his rhetoric and practicalities, pragmatisms. The conjunctural moment overwhelms everything. I mean, we're talking about an established issue, which is that the Golan Heights are a part of Syria. They were occupied by Israel. They are a contested territory. It is established Syrian territory held by the Israelis. Mr. Blinken doesn't actually deny that, he acknowledges that. But then the great principle of the question of sovereignty and so on, he says, we don't even need to in- over-interpret it, just pick up what he's saying. There's a difference between interpreting and elaborating. He says, he acknowledges to Wolf Blitzer, he acknowledges, listen, yes, okay, we acknowledge that this Golan Heights territory is Syrian territory, but for practical reasons, for reasons of geopolitics, for reasons of Israel's military outlook, it is inconceivable that the Golan Heights can be handed back to Syria. And he puts, of course, a point of consideration, which is as long as Assad is in power in Damascus. Now, that's interesting that Mr. Blinken has said that. Is that established U.S. policy? Imagine tomorrow, Mr. Assad decides, look, I've had enough. I'm going to retire, go back to my ophthalmologist, you know, eye doctor history. I don't want to do this anymore. Imagine how stressful his job is. Okay, he decides. And somebody else becomes the president. Is it then valuable to go back to Mr. Blinken, to the U.S. government and say, well, I thought you said to Wolf Blitzer, established U.S. policy. As long as Mr. Assad is there, Syria doesn't have a right to its own territory, which is occupied by Israel. Is that really what you meant? Well, no, of course, because by then they will change the goalposts and say, no, it cannot. So it's very clear on the one side, there's an international division of humanity. How they talk about Ukraine is much different than how they talk about the Palestinians or the Iraqis or the Yemenis or whoever. And I want to make a point about Yemen, Brian, before I, I come back to you, which is on this point of the international division of humanity and then the provisional nature of principles. You know, we have a principle of self-determination or of integrity of a country, except when you don't. Look at the case of Yemen. The United States has a diplomatic problem with Yemen. The diplomatic problem is the Yemenis said we are not going to permit ships to go past our territorial waters if these ships are carrying weapons to Israel. That's what they said, and we'll attack them. Now, it's interesting that the United States, on principle, should have said, as they often say rhetorically, that we are interested in dialogue and diplomacy. Mr. Anthony Blinken, who has traveled numerous times to Tel Aviv to talk to people in Tel Aviv, numerous times to the Emirati, the Gulf Arab states, and so on, never flew into Sana'a to discuss with the Yemen government what should be a compromise around Red Sea shipping. There's an international division of humanity. You don't need to talk to the Yemenis like they are people. You fire missiles on them like they are animals. There was no diplomacy from the United States. Why didn't even a low-level diplomat fly into Sana'a to ask the Yemenis, can we have a compromise to this? No. Immediately you got to have military force. That is actually emblematic, Brian, of the International Division of, of Humanity. Some people you can have a diplomatic conversation with, regardless of your principles being uneven or of you withdrawing principles, but you still have a diplomatic discussion. And others, you just fire missiles. And I think people need to pay attention to that. The firing of a missile on Yemen was not a normal act of interstate relations. It is an abnormal act. Which the United States reserves for those whom it considers savages, whether it's the Sudanese when Bill Clinton fired at the Al Shifa pharmaceutical factory, or it's the Yemenis in the current situation. That's the international division of humanity.
0: Very happy, VJ, that you framed it that way. And in the case of Al Shifa pharmaceutical that was bombed in Sudan, that was the largest producer of anti-malarial medicine for all of Africa or certainly Sub-Saharan Africa, one of the biggest killers in Africa, but the U.S. bombed it. They wiped it out in so-called self-defense because a U.S. embassy in Kenya was bombed by a terrorist entity, but they wiped out the pharmaceutical factory that produced anti-malarial drugs. Anyway, it is the International Division of Humanity. I'm so glad you framed it that way. And just for our audience that may be younger, newer, maybe watching the show for the first time, The Golan Heights was part of Syria and the Israelis seized it in June 1967 in an act of war, in an act of aggressive war. They seized the West Bank. That's how the West Bank became, quote, occupied. They seized Gaza. They seized a big part of Egypt. There are many, many, many UN resolutions condemning this occupation. And today you have, based on the International Division of Humanity, also you might call it the division between imperialism and the colonized people of the world or semi-colonized people of the world, that same division that just keeps going and going, regardless of the formal end of colonialism. You know, you have the United States government demanding that Israel, that the Israeli military be allowed to continue bombing and destroying Gaza. And they're destroying, as you said, VJ, they're destroying everything. Whenever the Israelis conquer a certain part of Gaza, they blow the whole thing up. They blow up the universities. They set demolition. That's not self-defense. They're wiping out Gaza. And based on this international division of humanity, that's cool with the United States government. And you know, some people in the pro-Palestine movement, and we're all out in the streets, say, well, we want to abandon Biden. Well, that's good. I want to abandon Biden too. I've never didn't abandon Biden, but you can't abandon him for Trump because Trump will be the same. This is really not about this party or that party. There is the division between imperialism on the one side and the colonized and semi-colonized people of the world, or as you have written about over and over again, between what we use in sort of generic terms, the global north and the global south. If you abstract Gaza or Ukraine from this existing reality of contemporary politics, you don't actually understand it. You just are looking for who, American imperialism in the media
1: says is the villain you should hate next. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because let's go back to the question of Ukraine. This is an interesting conflict and it's ground down. I mean, that's the immense tragedy of it. You know, this language that's used about, you know, Russia, the aggressor, Putin, the dictator and so on. It's very influential rhetoric. I mean, recently, a opposition figure died in prison. Now, it's very interesting that even progressives have to concede that this particular gentleman was an ethno-nationalist in an early part of his his career. In fact, deeply Islamophobic, very much a xenophobe, and so on, you know, and and it may be true what some people are saying, that after his arrest, he had begun to reflect on his behavior earlier. But the political legacy that he leaves behind is a right-wing, fascistic kind of politics. Very interesting how in the Western media and from Western institutions, you know, foreign ministries and so on, they're treating him as a liberal Democrat who has been savaged by Mr. Putin. It's a very disturbing thing to me. Like the man was a fascist, you know, and whether he was personally a fascist or not is not the point. The point is he led a bloc that had a very large number of fascist and xenophobic, Islamophobic people in it. And, you know, later in his life, as people say, well, you know, he changed his mind, but he didn't distance himself from his base, which was a fascistic, right-wing, xenophobic base. But I'm not interested in that. I don't want to debate Mr. Nawalski's politics and so on. I'm interested, Brian, in how they're portraying him. They portray this man as a great hero who was killed in prison or died in prison, or, you know, exaggerated statements about the Great Democrat, and this is a mirror of how the conflict in Ukraine has been talked about. You know, in Ukraine, as you said, in 2014, there were actual Nazis conducting a coup d'etat. High officials of the United States government, Victorian Newland, and others, in the Maidan, in Kiev, directing what was happening, or at least being part of what was happening. And, and I want to pause here for a second. There's nobody who doubts that Victoria Newland, high official of the U.S. government, was in the Maidan, was right there talking to people on the cell phone that was leaked later, talking about who should become the next prime minister. And why I'm raising this is, in Syria, during the early part of the protests against Mr. Assad, there were U.S. government officials and British government officials going to these rallies In two cases addressing the rallies, just imagine, imagine, Brian, in New York City, if a Russian diplomat at any point went to Times Square and and addressed anybody. I mean, wow, or a Chinese diplomat, this would not be taken lightly at all. And yet it was seen as perfectly normal that, you know, Mr. John McCain, Victoria Newland and others would be right there alongside these Nazis. I mean, these, again, like you, I don't use this word Nazi as a catch all kind of put down. You know, it's not an insult. This is actually a political description. This is the tradition that these people come out of. It's the program that they accept. And right beside them are US politicians in 2014. This is exactly the same kind of crowd that they are now trying to turn into Democrats in Russia. Now, again, by calling them what they are, which is Nazis, that doesn't exculpate the people they were opposed to. You know, the government in Ukraine, as you say, in 2014, had its own problems. Mr. Putin has his own problems. But that doesn't mean that if you have problems with Mr. Putin, you're going to whitewash the history and political trajectory of Mr. Novavsky and others. You know, the Stefan Bandera supporters in Ukraine. I mean these people are actually Nazis. But it's so interesting that the West at this time is making an alliance with the Nazis in Ukraine and in Russia against the forces in that territory. It is so interesting. And I think I don't want to make a judgment about this, but I would very much like people in the United States in Britain and so on to reflect on this. That you know you need to recognize that Viktor Navalsky was not a democratic liberal, you know, even a right-wing liberal. The guy has a base that was suffused with some of the most disturbing characters in Russian political life. Reflect on that. Don't read the New York Times obituary and assume that it's the exact obituary of the person. I mean, Mr. Navalsky may not recognize himself in that obituary. I, I find that very disturbing how the history, the exact contemporary history of our times is being written by these mediocre periodicals. And I must say, when it comes to the destruction in Gaza, you've got to give it to the New York Times that they published Professor Balogopal's essay. He is a professor at MIT, Brian, but he's also the UN Special Rapporteur on Adequate Housing. And he wrote a very strong piece on Gaza, where he called what is happening in Gaza domicide. He said 80% of the housing north of Wadi, Gaza has been destroyed. And in all of Gaza, 60%. And then he makes a point, which is really quite important. He says the bombing by the Israelis in Gaza is worse than the Allied bombardment of Dresden. Worse than the Allied bombardment of Dresden. And why this is important is that every young person in the United States in high school is at some point either given to read, or encourage to read the very important book by Kurt Vonnegut called Slaughterhouse 5 perhaps one of the most influential anti war books in the United States and if you haven't read it friends if you still got it sitting in your parents apartment from your high school years and you didn't bother to crack it call mom call dad go back home get that book out read Slaughterhouse 5 and remember that Balagopal says that the Israeli bombing in Gaza now is worse than what Kurt Vonnegut so honestly and provocatively described in his terrific Slaughterhouse-Five. They are rewriting contemporary history and somehow they're getting away with it. We can't let them get away with it.
0: No, very good point. And and Vonnegut was a prisoner of war there in Dresden. And so he comes up after the firebombing, which was basically just an experiment, and the whole city is gone and completely incinerated. You know, while the Navalny and his crew had at least a part of their their past was openly fascist and whether he moved on or not, the articles, VJ, in the New York Times, I, I was just looking through them. The first four articles in the New York Times were about Navalny, Navalny's wife, the future of Navalny's opposition in Russia, and like Gaza was the ninth story, the death of this one man, whatever the circumstances, and we don't know the circumstances, we're not pretending to know the circumstances. I wanna go back to the 2014 coup and the points that you made about Victoria Newland. And we saw some B-roll there where you could see John McCain, then alive, one of the top Republicans in the US Senate. He was with Victoria Newland. This was a bipartisan effort to overthrow the Yanukovych government. Again, a corrupt government, not a left government, but a government that had professed neutrality and insisted that Ukraine would never join NATO. That was his sin in the eyes of the West. Now, what happened in Maidan, in the center of Kiev, was protests started in the fall of 2013, and they weren't all you know, Nazis. Probably 90% of the people had other grievances. They weren't part of the Azov Battalion or other, the right sector or other right-wing forces. But the Nazis played a disproportionate role and a decisive role. And they actually, at the end, led this armed insurrection. Now, the armed insurrection happened on February 22nd, 2014, the day before an agreement was signed between the Ukrainian government and the opposition. And there was a meeting of international observers, including the United States and the Putin government in Russia was in the signing room on February 21st. The Ukrainian government, under pressure, decided to withdraw police from Kiev. And they also agreed to early elections and decentralized power in Ukraine, meaning that they were giving in to the, the opposition demands. So on February 21st, they signed an agreement. There was a memorandum. And the next day, the Ukrainian government pulls the police out of downtown Kiev. And the Nazis, who are armed to the teeth, and represent maybe 10% of the protesters in Maidan, they storm the parliament, they disperse the parliament, the president runs for his life, he flees. Now, we have a, a video clip of the Nazis. These are Nazis, they're not pretending to be something else. They are Nazis. They say we are Nazis, we are proud to be Nazis. I wanna play this little clip for you, VJ, because they talk about their role in Maidan. And anyway, let's play it and then I'll get your comments. This is
2: a clip of Ukrainian neo-Nazi leader Yevgeny Karas speaking on February 5th, 2022. Maidan was the victory of nationalist ideas. Nationalists were the key factor there and clearly at the front lines. Now, there's a lot of speculation saying, well, there were only a few neo-Nazis, LGBT and foreign embassies saying there were not many neo-Nazis in Maidan, maybe about 10% of the real ideological ones. Such a thing can only be said by a moron that was never at war and doesn't understand that those 10%, maybe even less, 8%, how much more their effectiveness was. It was endless. If not for those 8% of neo-Nazis, the effectiveness of Maidan would dropped
0: by 90%. They say, yeah, yeah, we were only 10%, but we were the decisive
1: 10%. Well, let me take you on a little journey before 2014 to Tahrir Square in 2011, just to amplify the point made by that gentleman. You know, millions of people in Egypt were upset with the government of Hosni Mubarak. I mean, there had been a spate of privatizations. There was now a plan to effectively make the Mediterranean coastline, Alexandria and so on, into a playground for the rich to create a kind of tourist paradise for northern Egypt. People are upset. There was I knew many of the people who went into not only Tariq Square, but into various kind of protests in Egypt at the time. There's a range of forces involved. The most active people confronting the police were not some of these forces, but were the young orphaned kids of the street who lived in the great cemeteries. You know. They were the ones throwing rocks at the cops, and they knew how to fight the police. They spent their whole short lives fighting the police. But there was only one organized force in the Tahrir Square. Yes, the trade unions from Mahalla in the textile area did come into the square, but they came, they gave their solidarity, they left. When the forces of the government attacked wearing civilian clothing, you know, they came in very violently. There was only one force that defended that square, and it was very clear that that force was going to act as the vanguard, and that was the Muslim Brotherhood. They came as a political party. They had meetings and discussions about how to lead the process inside the square. They defined the media strategy. Why? Because even though they may not have been everybody in the square, they were an organized block, And then... When it came to the question of elections afterwards, they swept up the advance of the Tahrir Square, and they won the election, and Mohamed Morsi became the president. He was subsequently overthrown and killed by the current government of Mr. Sisi, but that's a separate issue. The point is, the uprising in the Arab Spring was not defined by a million autonomous people. A small, organized force can play a decisive role. And... We didn't even need to go to Tahrir Square for this, Brian. Your show is called The Socialist Program. We could have gone backwards to 1917 to the role played by the Bolsheviks. Again, a small force of people, highly dedicated, highly organized, came in there, understood the nature of the mass uprising, the difference between the Bolsheviks and what happened in Tahrir Square and what that gentleman was saying happened is in the manner is very instructive. The Bolsheviks did not impose their political ideas upon the protests taking place from St. Petersburg to Ekaterinburg. They did not. They actually drove an agenda that was alongside the public sentiment. Their demands were very much alongside public sentiment. Land, end the war, bread, and so on. Those were the slogans coming from the vast mass. It's just that the Bolsheviks organized the sentiment of the vast mass used their experience, in fact, to strengthen the vast mass's political feelings. The difference in Tahrir and in Maidan from the Bolshevik revolution of 1917 is very important. In both Tahrir Square and in the Maidan, a small organized force, whether it's 10%, and I think he was being a little ingenuous to himself, I think there were more than 10% in that square, but nonetheless, whether it's 10, 12, 15, doesn't matter. The point is a small section, the Nazi element in Ukraine and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, they impose their politics on the masses of people. In the case of, of Tahrir Square and in Egypt more generally, the Muslim Brotherhood imposed their politics. They said, this mass uprising is a good moment for us to impose our politics of piety on the society. So Mr. Morsi comes in and imposes an agenda of piousness upon people. That was not what they were protesting about. In other words, unlike the Bolsheviks, they had an imposition of their own ideology on the mass struggle. And the same thing in Ukraine. You're right. There were other forces in the Maidan. There were some maybe genuine liberals. There were also people of the left in the Maidan. I had friends who participated in it and so on. But They did not define the Maidan, and the force that basically helped shape the politics once the Maidan became effective, once the coup happened, that force imposes their politics on the country. It's not that they have the generosity of spirit to reflect the wide nature of the struggle or where people are in at what level they are in at that point. They put their politics on top of, of the country. And that was the banderaism. I mean, that is why you started seeing more and more laws banning Russian speech and so on. That is the imposition of this fascistic, anti-democratic spirited Nazi element that was very much anti-Russian, that imposed their politics on everybody. So he's right. It's of course nobody ever says there's 100 percent Nazis. That's ridiculous. Neither of us have ever said anything like that. But what I will say is that small organized forces can disproportionately play a role in an event like this, in a spontaneous outburst. The test of how you measure the politics is how this small force behaves as a vanguard in terms of everybody else. And in the case of of Egypt and in Ukraine, this small vanguard, the Muslim Brotherhood and the Banderites and other neo-Nazis impose their narrow views on the public, something that the Bolsheviks never did in 1917 onwards.
0: There's the leadership in the square in Maidan 10 years ago that were protesting the Yanukovych government. And again, as you said, there were liberals, there were people, some on the left, mainly representing the Western part of Ukraine, meaning the non-Russian speaking part of Ukraine and Ukraine is very divided linguistically, but you have this leadership that's fascist and that's armed. And so they can be decisive as the Nazis who we listen to, or if you could read subtitles, and if you're watching the show, they say it explicitly, we were decisive. Now there's another leadership behind the protests and that's the US government in the EU. And you mentioned Victoria Nuland, and we saw the picture of John McCain in Maidan in Ukraine. Now I want to play another clip. It's the famous call between Victoria Newland and the US ambassador to Kiev to Ukraine. This is right before the fascist coup, right before the government is toppled and you hear Victoria Newland talking about who the new government is going to be. So, you know, when we say it was a Nazi-led coup d'état, some people are saying, "Are you saying the US is supporting Nazis?" I'm saying the US actually doesn't care who it uses in terms of the human materiel at a given moment, it's another leadership. It has another agenda. Its agenda was not the same, but it was willing to use Nazis to topple the government because the goal was to topple the government. Then they could move on and reshape the government and make it essentially a proxy government, a right-wing government, but more important than anything, a proxy of America, basically a puppet government. And we know, Vijay, now in Ukraine, there's martial law, people who favored better relations with Russia, those political leaders, they're in jail. Zelensky canceled the elections. No elections can happen as long as martial law exists as part of Ukraine's constitution. So it's a police state. Anyway, here's the leaders behind the leaders, the leaders behind the Nazis. This is that famous call with Victoria Nuland right before the coup, talking to the US ambassador, and she is from the State Department. She was Hillary Clinton's press spokesperson when Clinton became Secretary of State. She's still a major player in American politics. Let's listen.
2: I don't think Cleach should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. I think Yatz is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week. You know, I, I, I just think Klech going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it and, you know, f- the EU.
1: Go ahead, Vijay. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, you know, what is one to say, okay? Once this call was released, you know, US government started to try to shift the debate about who hacked her phone and who released it. Nobody denied that this is an authentic call, okay? I, till now, nobody has suggested there was you know, AI used to generate the call. This is, this is how they talk. And the, the line about the European Union is rattling because it just demonstrates the European Union and in fact, Europe, the subordinate or the contempt with which the US government looks at Europe. And by the way, these are the democratic-minded people, democratic party people, who are supposed to have a less harsh attitude towards Europe than the Republicans. I mean, Trump was openly contemptuous of the European governments, right? Openly said, you guys don't spend enough. In fact, recently, we, we're not going to defend you if you don't spend enough on your own defense. Openly contemptuous. But look, this is somebody who worked for Mrs. Clinton. And as, if not more contemptuous, you know, completely dismissive, how she talks about that the UN must be used. I mean. I remember talking to friends who work in the United Nations Secretariat, the cringe, you know, the whole building shuddered when they listened to that tape, because it's true. You know, I have a story told to me by Butras Butras Ghali, who was a one term secretary general at the United Nations. Butras Ghali said that after the United States said that he would not have a second term, he was quite upset. He was a distinguished Egyptian diplomat. He had a very tough brief, Brian. I know people are down on Brutus Ghali, but he became the Secretary General when the Soviet Union collapsed. He had to deal with an immense, you know, push by the US to go and destroy Iraq in ninety-one and so on. He had a very difficult brief. I actually feel for him. He was an old Nasserite in a difficult position. But what he said was after the US government had told him that he was not going to be the Secretary General again, they dismissed him. Madeleine Albright, then the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., came to lunch in his house in Boutros Ghali's beautiful apartment in New York and said to him there, can you help me? What should I do next with my career? And I remember hearing this story thinking, my God, both the contempt that the United States high officials have for others and then the blindness about their contempt, the fact that having dismissed Boutros Ghali like a servant you then go and ask him, can you give me some career advice? Absolute tone-deaf blindness. You know, the way Vicky Newland says, well, the UN can be brought in to stitch this up. I mean, the cringe in the UN building, you know, because people in the UN don't want to think of themselves as effectively clean up men and clean up women for the United States imperial policy anywhere in the world, let alone in Ukraine. But I must say, this has become a problem for the UN. This is how they were used in Afghanistan in the period of the US occupation of Afghanistan. They were used as cleanup people. You know, they were brought in to sort of take care of this or that aspect. US error, they come in, you know, to clean up afterwards. But the really key part in that leaked message is what comes before the contempt for the EU, European Union, and this sort of cringeworthy statement about the UN, and that's the key part—the part that comes before, where you know Victoria Newland is actually—and you're quite right—the neo Nazis or the Nazi element were the foot soldiers. And then while the Nazis are out there throwing fire bombs and saluting their old Hitlerite salute and so on, here she is on a cell phone deciding the next government of Ukraine, and not only deciding the next government of Ukraine, Brian, but I well remember listening to this tape and thinking, my God. These people are shameless. You're you're deciding who will be the next president of Ukraine, but you're also deciding whether they are competent and who should be their advisors. I mean, it's at a level of of puppeteering, okay? I mean, I can't think of any other word, Brian. A level of puppeteering, which in any other human being would have been a deep embarrassment. But for somebody like Victoria Newland or people in the Biden White House now, I don't think they are embarrassed about this. This is a tragedy of of the kind of moral collapse of u s. leadership. There's no embarrassment, you know, I mean, for God's sake, Victoria Newland, you should have denied the phone call had been made. You should have said, I, that's not me. it's hacked. It's AI, you know, some doctored tape. They didn't deny anything. They just said, well, that's the way it is. And I want to remind people that, you know, yesterday, the day before I'm talking to you, Brian, was the hearing in Britain over the case of Julian Assange, whether he should be extradited to the United States. It was very instructive for me, Brian, and I'm not a naive person, you know, I have a pretty good sense of the hard boiled nature of power. But going through the US State Department cables that had been released by WikiLeaks, you know, now again about a I don't know, a dozen years ago, going through those cables, reading the cables from Pakistan, from Egypt, countries that I had a special interest in, it was cringeworthy to listen to the U.S. officials talk about their counterparts, you know, and hear something important, because you said, and I think you're right, that these are puppeteers. The United States was the one, in fact, who engineered this at a high level. But even inside the U.S. apparatus, it's very interesting who's in charge. I was surprised, I remember reading Margaret Scobie ambassador, you know, to, I think, Pakistan or Egypt, Scobie's dispatches to DC. So Scobie writes in her dispatches, she says, you know, I'm the ambassador. And yet these three-star, four-star, five-star generals show up in town. And I am supposed to accompany them to meetings with high officials in these countries. And I sit there in these meetings like a stenographer. That's a high US ambassador writing that. And why I want to put this in there is even within the confines of the U.S. government, there's a hierarchy, you know. You don't have, I mean, Victoria Newland is not just a diplomat. She's a military diplomat. You can almost picture her putting that phone call off and calling somebody in the Pentagon ordering a drone strike. I mean, you know, they have a different attitude to other countries in the world. We don't like the Yemenis, we're going to bomb them. We don't like the government in Ukraine, which is going to get rid of them, and yaks and all these little... Ways of talking about people, we're going to get Tony Brook coming in, he's going to advise, he'll suffocate this fellow, keep him in check. Meanwhile, if there's a problem, we're just going to yank the Nazis back onto the street, create more commotion and chaos. It's no surprise that we use terms like hybrid war, you know, information war and so on. These things are real. You know, they are not the paranoid fictions of a ranter. This is how history actually happens, fellas. I'm sorry to say so. I'm sorry to bring this news to you. But history doesn't happen by, you know, decent people using reason and and the power of persuasion to convince each other of this or that position. Unfortunately, Noam Chomsky is right. The U.S. government increasingly acts like the godfather. If you don't follow orders, we're going to whack you. We're going to threaten to whack you in order to give you a little space to discipline yourself to stop defying us, to obey us. But if you continue your defiance, if you continue your disobedience, we're gonna whack you because we are the godfather. You know, the first time Chomsky used that expression, I was like a little skeptical of it. I thought, well, it's a little too cute. But you think about it, Brian, it's obviously not, he's not making an institutional point. This is not a sociological observation, right? He's not defining the US government, is not like the mafia sociologically or institutionally. This is a point about a culture, about how people behave. And listening to Vicky Newland, it's important we don't get stuck with what she's saying about whom. You've gotta also read the culture of that phone call, the godfather mafia attitude behind it. I picked that guy, that guy's going to be obedient to me. And if he's disobedient, let's call the Nazis and let's whack him.
0: And that guy, Yats, Yats, Yats is the guy she said. That's Yatzenyuk. And he did become the prime minister shortly thereafter. So they knew exactly what they were doing, a Western US trained economist. I wanna play a couple more video clips because you know now we have 10 years to look back on for the coup, two years to look back on from the war. We've learned a lot. So we have the leaders behind the leaders. There's the Nazi leaders in Ukraine. Behind them is Victoria Nuland, the big leaders, the imperialists. And as you're saying, she's a military diplomat. In other words, it's really the military state. Some people call it the deep state, whatever. It's the state. It's the state of U.S. imperialism and its inner workings and how it sees the world and functions. And we get this brief glimpse into how they really are thinking and talking. Then there's another group of leaders who are the capitalists, like Larry Fink, for instance, billionaire, pundit, BlackRock, Here's, he's talking about what things were like right after the Russians decided enough is enough. We're not gonna allow Ukraine to be brought into NATO. Russia had amassed hundreds of thousands of troops. I wanna play this clip because he's, he's actually, he's another group of leaders. These are the capitalists because the state is functioning as the, as the operators, the managers of a global apparatus for empire. But the capitalists actually know about that apparatus, but they mainly care about profit. And I want to play this because Larry Fink is paying attention, it's how he views Ukraine, Russia, and the breakup of the Soviet Union, because without the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, none of this would be happening. There would be no war right now. It was the dissolution of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, of which Russia was the biggest, and Ukraine was the second biggest. Without that event, this would not be happening. Let's listen to Larry Fink, and then I want to get your, your thoughts.
2: Since 1990, the, with the dismemberment of the Soviet Union, um, the world benefited from this incredible peace dividend. Absolutely. And Absolutely. this peace dividend created opportunities for American firms worldwide. We expanded globally. Right. We, we, you know, we were able to expand and build and, and do amazing things, and as did other countries were able to do that. But also importantly, you know, we raised the standard of living for the entire world. That peace dividend is now over.
0: Uh, well, it's not a peace dividend that Larry Fink is worried about. Those are just... That's sort of like hippy-dippy peace talk. He's talking about the expanding business opportunities and the fact that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the US was basically took all of Russia's allies in Eastern and Central Europe and incorporated them into an American sphere of influence under a US military alliance called NATO. But that opened up the door for American corporations and not simply in Europe, but also, In the southern republics of the former Soviet Union and in, of course, in Russia itself. And Larry Fink is saying that era, that great era, which he calls a peace dividend, which might be called the capitalist dividend, that era has come to an end with Russia's invasion. And I agree in one way, not with Larry Fink, but his assessment that Russia's invasion actually does demarcate the end of one era and the beginning of another era. We don't know. The new era has been given different names. We can talk about that. We don't really know what its outcome is because we're still living in the beginning stages of it. But I wanna talk to you about that. And then we'll actually have a couple more clips.
1: Well, the first thing is I would challenge Larry Fink's chronology because I think it all began to change at the beginning of the third great depression, which starts in 2007 with the financial crisis and so on. Putin goes to Munich and says, not one single master. And What you see is you see a different kind of Putin in Russia, different coalition of forces. They start cracking down on some of the oligarchs. They you know, even jail some of them. These oligarchs, by the way, then become the opposition, the political opposition. In fact, they were upset because their capitalist dividend was being taken away from them. You begin to see also Russia pivot towards the Chinese economy start to move towards attracting Chinese investment rather than than U.S. investment. The Central Asian countries, the former, as you said, southern republics of the USSR, a move towards the Belt and Road Initiative from 2012-13, once it's established formally in 2013. And you begin to see Larry Fink's billions in BlackRock finding a contest that now Chinese investment firms are entering, Russian investment firms, many of them state firms, firms seized back from the oligarchs, start to intervene. And, and that's the beginning of the contest. It's very interesting. When the war broke out in 2022, Mr. Fink himself started a direct and open relationship with Vladimir Zelensky. He goes and meets Mr. Zelensky in Kiev. They have a series of meetings in November 2022, BlackRock, BlackRock, mind you, and the Ukrainian government signed a memorandum of understanding, which was not much discussed in the Western media, but it was put up on the Ministry of Economy in Ukrainian government on their website. They have a memorandum of understanding where BlackRock says it'll undermine, it'll underwrite the entry of Wall Street. To invest in Ukraine. Then Mr. Fink, in I think early January of 2023, goes to Davos to the World Economic Forum, makes a speech at Davos, talks about the immense economic opportunities of rebuilding in Ukraine and so on, becomes a major ally of Mr. Zelensky. In fact, I would say a kind of Wall Street diplomat for Ukraine, if there were a position like that, would be Larry Fink. They are interested partly. Brian, in pushing back against the entry of Chinese and to some smaller extent Russian capital into these territories which they had thought was their own. This is a problem they are facing in countries like Hungary, Poland, and so on, big economies, where they had had a free run, you know, for a period. But now they are facing a contest to domestic capitals that want themselves to have a privileged role. I mean, Viktor Orban is not a creature of international capital as much as he is of the emerging new capital in his own country. You know, small Hungarian capitals emerging, able to underwrite Mr. Orban's nationalism. A nationalism of the kind of somebody like Orban, it's not just an ideological thing. You know, they use terms like populism and so on. No, you've got to look underneath that. He is actually lifted up by a set of Hungarian capitalists who know very well that they cannot compete with BlackRock and so on, and they are seeking forms of protection. This is strange. This is not import substitution, industrialization of the 1950s. You know, the, the sort of thing written about by Raul Prebich, the first Secretary General of the UN Conference on Trade and Development. This is a different kind of, you know, right-wing protectionism. Some of it, not protectionism. India, where Mr. Adani is a close partner of of Mr. Modi. He, Mr. Adani, the big, big giant billionaire owner of the Adani Group, who owns ports in Israel and in Greece and so on. Mr. Adani is using India's power to gain mercantilist advantage over over other business people outside India's borders. So, you know, this is part of what Mr. Fink is contesting. Firms like BlackRock want to find new markets. And my God, this war provided him with a great opportunity to appear not like a predatory capitalist, but as a great diplomat and a great democrat And he comes out there and says, we will help rebuild Ukraine. But come on, Larry. I mean, you know, we've been through this dance before. I mean, Larry, you are not interested in rebuilding Ukraine. You are interested in BlackRock, perhaps using Ukraine a little bit like the Bush administration wanted to use Iraq. Remember, Iraq was to be the laboratory for a kind of neoliberal state in the Arab world. For NATO and the Gulf Arab countries, Libya. Was to be a laboratory. They said, we want to make Kuwait on the Mediterranean. And now for Mr. Fink, Ukraine, a laboratory for a neoliberal Eastern Europe, clawed back from Chinese capital and Russian capital. But it's not going to work. It didn't work in Iraq. It didn't work in Libya. And I very much doubt that Mr. Fink, even if he makes investments, is making long term investments to develop Ukraine. These are going to be predatory investments because guess what, guys? BlackRock. That is a predatory firm. That is not a firm that makes long-term productive investments that improve people's lives.
0: When we think about war, Vijay, we think a lot of times about the geostrategic positioning, competition, maneuvering, jockeying, but it's so helpful that you're framing this properly, that behind the war, this war and these wars, are class interests. And in the case of Larry Fink and the other capitalists, they are seeing geostrategic politics sort of with one thing in mind, which is how to strengthen their own market position, their own share, to take somebody else's market. And these contemporary wars are, you know, as Lenin pointed out, the wars at least waged by the Western capitalist powers and Japan, wars about division and redivision of markets, and and clearly. I think you're absolutely right. And this is what's missing in a lot of political analysis is the class viewpoint. We are the socialist program. We're working out of a Marxist framework. So for us, we see, as Marx saw, that beneath the, the language, the, the speeches, the ideologies and philosophies of different political players, there are class interests. There are real class interests, the interests of the capitalists in the case of Larry Fink. Here's an article from yesterday talking about class interests, VJ, because Biden is having trouble selling the new bill through Congress, through the House of Representatives to give another $60 billion to Ukraine. The article, the headline is very revealing. It says, Biden wants people to know most of the money he's seeking for Ukraine will be spent in the United States. And then you read the first paragraph, And it turns out that 40 of the $60 billion, 40 will never leave the United States. It's all for US weapons manufacturers. And then they talk about this factory in New Jersey and this factory in Ohio and this factory. This is a jobs program an inefficient jobs program because producing missiles and the weapons of mass destruction are capital intensive. They're not labor intensive. They don't need that many workers. But they make a lot of money because it's guaranteed profits. And if we think also about these wars and take away the element, the class interests of the American capitalists who benefit from war, who see even the war in Gaza, what are they really thinking? They're thinking like Israel's using up all of its bombs and missiles. That means they're going to buy more of them. And where are they going to come from? They're going to come from us. The American taxpayers are going to subsidize them through, quote, aid to Israel. But that too will be money that much of it will never leave the United States. Again, these are rich men's war. We, that's not rhetoric. That's not rhetoric. That's actually reflective of the class nature of this imperial system.
1: Well, you know, what you described in that article, that's actually, a, there's a technical term for that. There's a literature, a scholarly literature on it. It's called tied aid. Like you tie something up, tied aid. Tied aid is merely when a donor country says, I am going to magnanimously give you aid, but in fact, I'm tying my giving of the aid to you being obliged to buy goods and services from my country. You know, the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, this is a a body based in Europe of the advanced industrial countries, the OECD countries. The OECD has published a series of reports, Brian, one of them, an important report I read a few years ago called Untying Aid, where the OECD countries, the United States, a member of this body, says that it's unhealthy for development aid of any kind to be tied because of the costs involved. So, for instance, there was a book some years ago, you probably read it, Brian, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, where he described in a chapter the building of a power plant in Indonesia by Bechtel Corporation. And because of Tide Aid, the power plant had to be built using materials produced in the United States, which meant that this power plant in Indonesia was like 100 times more expensive than it would have been had there not been a Tide Aid provision if Bechtel had been able, even Bechtel, had been able to source steel from India or even Indonesia other chemicals from Southeast Asia and so on, the cost of building the power plant much lower. And by the way, who bore the bill for building that power plant? There was tide aid, but large part of the investment came from the Indonesian government. So they get stuck paying off loans for something that was more expensive than it could have been because of tide aid. And in this case it's obscene because again you're saying well we are going to support the war effort in Ukraine. Come on, you know let's be clear. When Vladimir Zelensky came to Washington, D.C., the most well-attended meeting he had was with all the leaders of the arms companies, because they are very grateful for this. They know that most U.S. military aid, not all of it, but most U.S. military aid is tied aid. The United States says to Israel, we're going to give you so much billion dollars of weaponry. What it means is we're going to ship you billions of dollars of weaponry from our arms companies. It's It's actually a buried subsidy. To the U.S. arms industry. This is, in fact, an illegal trade device that you pretend it's aid, but you're actually subsidizing your arms industry. But Ukraine is appalling, Brian, and I'm very worried about this. In fact, I know it's a terrible situation now, but the Biden administration is trying to push through a bill that allows tactical missiles to go to Ukraine. Now, these tactical missiles are exactly What Mr. Putin has been saying, I don't want to see those so close to the Russian border. And I I want to take this opportunity to say I think it was terribly naive of Mikhail Gorbachev and Edward Shavadnadze to accept a handshake agreement with James Baker when Germany was reunited, to have that handshake agreement that NATO would not go one inch eastward of the German border, because it was naive. I mean, why would you trust the United States and the NATO countries to abide by that? that agreement they violated the agreement almost immediately and not only did nato move eastward and i'm i'm very upset that people say this is a putin talking point for god's sake use some rationality you know no country would accept having tactical missiles of any kind nuclear or conventional right on their border within firing distance of their capital and no country would accept that no country would accept that If you also have high officials of the country that's placed the missile at your border, making statements such as we want to weaken that country, we want to overthrow that government, you're making verbal threats and then you're placing tactical missiles at the border. My God, the combination is insane. It would make any government upset. This is not a Putin talking point. It's a very unfortunate way of of stopping a discussion and debate. No country would accept language like that combined with tactical missiles sitting at the border. And that's exactly what the Biden administration is trying to ramp through the U.S. Congress. Some Republicans are holding it up, I think to some extent on partisan grounds and so on. But I very much hope it doesn't pass because not only is this a boondoggle for the arms industry in the U.S., a lot of money going to them, but this is a further provocation at a time when sane people should be talking about the need for a peace deal in Ukraine. You know, I know that the front line is changing. I know that the Russians have made some advances. But Russia is, in fact, I don't believe, interested in making enormous advances. They don't want to take Kiev. You know, it's very clear that they don't want to occupy all of Ukraine. They have said that they want to hold the parts that are now within Russia, and they want to have an agreement to denazify Kiev. That's where they are in terms of their negotiating points. So these small gains made at the border shouldn't change anybody's mind that the necessity of a ceasefire and a political process in Ukraine is absolutely imperative at this point. And sending tactical missiles into Ukraine, not only near Ukraine, but into Ukraine, would be such a dangerous provocation. And Mr. Biden is playing with fire if he does that playing with the fate of the world. I I don't mean to say it in some exaggerated way, but I feel that. I feel that Mr. Biden is threatening the fate of humanity by trying to push these tactical missiles into Ukraine. If we look
0: at that map, Vijay, the the pink orange area, those are the areas that the Russians have controlled. They're the areas close to Russia. So you have Crimea, and then you have the Donbass. You have basically a land bridge Connecting essentially the Russian speaking parts of eastern Ukraine, the parts that were targeted by the government in Kiev after the 2014 coup, after that new government said Russia is no longer like an official second language. And just for people who in America who don't really get it, I mean, Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, was the capital of Russia from 849 to 1240, in other words, about the same time that the United States has existed as a country, Kiev was the capital of Russia. Ukraine only becomes a Ukrainian state in 1922, and then it's with Russia as one of the socialist republics in the USSR. Ukraine only becomes completely independent in 1991, and then the US stages or supports, as we've gone through in this show, a coup d'etat, toppling a government that had promised to stay out of NATO and bringing in a government that promised to go into NATO, thus allowing tactical weapons to be placed on Russia's border. And we know, Vijay, the Russians had said over and over again, that's a red line, we're not gonna allow it. They amassed 100,000 troops in the east and northern part above Ukraine. They were threatening to come in. And there was a very passive, sort of serene response, Blinken. And Sullivan kept saying, yeah, the Russians are gonna invade. Yes, the Russians are gonna invade. And, but they didn't do anything to rush back to the negotiating table to prevent an invasion because they wanted the invasion. They thought this was gonna be the final de so to speak, of Russian influence in that area. And they also thought it would weaken Russia. I wanna, before we end, and I'm gonna give you the last comment here, I wanna play two quick clips. This is Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin talking about what the real goal is. And everybody should notice, It's think about his words. It's not about a tender place in his heart about Ukrainians. And then I wanna go to a final clip, which is Anthony Blinken talking in the same cold-hearted way, sort of naked imperialist way about the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline that brought Russian natural gas and other Russian energy sources to Europe Anyway, let's start with Lloyd Austin. I think we have that clip. Uh, we want to see Russia uh, uh, weakened uh, to the
2: degree that it can't uh, do the kinds of things that uh, it has done uh, in, in invading
1: Ukraine.
0: Okay, so there's the Secretary of Defense. We want Russia weakened. Okay, like just straight out. This is the final clip, and it, we're going to give you the last word here, Vijay. And it goes to something that you in particular, but the whole team at TriContinental have been writing a lot about, which is the US seeing the Ukraine war as an instrument to maintain domination over Europe, over their so-called allies, the other major capitalist powers. Anyway, here's Anthony Blinken. Everybody listen to this and then Vijay just pick it up afterwards. Ultimately,
2: um, this is also a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity to once and for all remove the dependence on Russian energy and thus to take away from uh, Vladimir Putin the weaponization of energy as a means of advancing uh, his uh, imperial designs. Uh, that's very significant. And, and that offers tremendous um, strategic opportunity for, um, for the years to come.
0: He's talking, Vijay, about a terrorist bombing of a pipeline that is supplying all of Europe with that which Europe needs to heat its homes, he was like, well, look, uh, great
1: strategic opening. Anyway, you get the last word. Well, let's pause with his use of the word weaponize. Historically, at least in the last 50 years, United States has weaponized finance systems. The entire sanctions policy against 20, 30 countries around the world is a weaponizing of, of what? Of finance, weaponizing of the SWIFT system, which should be inviolable. The United States has weaponized the digital infrastructure, just cut off countries from access to the internet, slowed down internet times and so on, because 10 out of the 13 DNS root servers go through the United States. Weaponization of normal policies of life is a familiar thing with the United States government. Has Russia weaponized energy? Well, of course, it's a major power. It has played games with energy. Let's not deny it. India weaponizes the fact that Nepal is landlocked. Every time there's a conflict between India and Nepal, they shut the border down. Countries do this thing to each other. You know, you can deal with it. That's why we have diplomacy. Diplomacy is the art of dealing with the exaggerated response of one country to the other. But what we're seeing now from the United States government is actually worse than the weaponization of energy. What the U.S. government has done is they have made Europe reliant upon liquefied natural gas from the United States. And I want people to think about this. Europe used to get its natural gas to a great extent from Russia through the pipelines, land pipelines and Nord Stream 2, also land pipelines going through Ukraine. This was cheaper and, by the way, better for the environment because you're just piping natural gas through pipelines. When you liquefy natural gas, you have to convert a gas into a solid, carry it across the Atlantic on a ship, get it off the ship in Hamburg and Rotterdam and so on, put it back into the gaseous state, all of this requiring an immense amount of energy, and then pipe it into people's homes. It's more expensive, and it's worse for the planet. And here you have Mr. Blinken, a government which supposedly is worried about the environmental catastrophe, basically subordinating Europe. To the energy provision from the United States where there is no pipeline across the Atlantic Ocean. And I don't think at the present moment we have the capacity to build a pipeline like that. And it would be in- incredibly dangerous to build an undersea, under ocean pipeline of that length to send natural gas. You don't have that. And it would be so expensive. You know, it is actually practical for Europe to rely on Russian natural gas. That's a practicality. You can negotiate. The details, you know, these are grown countries. But no, the interest in breaking the link with Russia, weakening Russia, Lloyd Austin and Trump earlier, going to NATO headquarters and saying to Jens Stoltenberg's face, the head of NATO, saying that, look, we can't do two things. We can't defend you and have you pour billions of dollars into the Russian arsenal for energy. We can either defend you or you can you know, be reliant on Russian energy. That's what Trump said to Jens Stoltenberg. It's always puzzled me people say he's pro-Russia. Don't get it from his actual diplomatic dealings with Russia. But the point is here, very clear. These are cynical men with a cynical agenda. When Mr. Austin says we can Russia, he said that in 2022 when he went to Kiev. It's a dangerous comment to make. Russia is, whatever you think of the government, powerful nuclear weapon state. You don't play these games with powerful countries. You find every every way to negotiate with them. You don't fear the subordination of Europe to Russia and China and think the antidote to that subordination is accelerate a conflict with Ukraine and bring bring us close to planetary annihilation. And that's precisely what Biden has done, precisely what Austin and Blinken have done. They have played essentially high stakes poker with the world, the fate of the world. And that's where we are. And I very much hope that after the second anniversary of the Russian entry into Ukraine, the invasion, joint military operation, whatever they call it, looks like an invasion to me. After two years of this, I very much hope that sane people will call for a ceasefire, a political negotiation, a discussion that will leave everybody with something of dignity as they live close to each other. Frankly. Ukraine cannot be moved to live in the Midwest somewhere. It has to live next to Russia. The Ukrainian people are going to have to have some agreement and understanding with the people of Russia. It's better they start that discussion now than let this degenerate further, that they become permanent adversaries with their neighbors.
0: And VJ, undoubtedly, the people in Ukraine want to end the war. Zelensky and his team and the American arms manufacturers and Biden And most of the Republicans wanna keep it going. I saw articles recently where the US government says their main concern is that Ukrainians are becoming casualty averse, meaning they don't want their sons to die in this disgusting, terrible, meat grinding kind of war. Obviously, Ukraine won't win. Obviously, there needs to be a negotiated end to the war. We've been saying from the beginning, a negotiated solution was at hand prior to the conflict, prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The U.S. scuttled it. You know, people have to be objective. Vijay, I want to thank you so much. I want to also encourage people to go to your website, thetricontinental.org. Thetricontinental.org. Vijay Prashad, thank you so much.
1: Thanks a lot, Brian. Anytime. You've been listening to The Socialist Program
0: with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it.
1: Thank